everyone and welcome to today's Power Planner Assembly and we're going to be talking about the consumer duty today. So before we get started I'd just like to say a big thank you to all of the Power Planner Assembly supporters because we wouldn't be able to put on um, brilliant events like this if not for them. So I just want to say a big thank you to Aegon, Barnett Waddingham, Canaccord, M&G Wealth, Armenian, Scottish Widows and Transact. So thank you to all of those guys. Now, if you're new to the Power Planner Assembly, um, welcome. And if this is your first one, um, just a little bit about it. It's a really interactive session. And we, the more that you put in, the more that you'll get out of it. So um, there's plenty of opportunity to chat using the chat box. And there's also the ask a question link at the bottom there. And if you want to follow the Power Planners Assembly, you just click on the top up there. There's a big follow button and you can follow them on Crowdcast as well. But just to make sure that the chat's actually working properly, if you could just, I don't know, say hello and whatever your favourite cheese is in the, um, in the chat box, we'll be able to check that that's all working. So today is being recorded, so you can watch this back again if you want to. And the Power Planner Assembly have also started doing the online assemblies is, as podcasts. So you can download this later today as a podcast if you um, if you prefer. And we've also got Richard in the background who's dealing with all the um, techie aspects. So hello, Richard, right there. And um, he's going to be helping us with all of the technical bits and pieces. But like I said, today we're going to be talking about the consumer duty and I'm really thrilled that we've got friend of the assembly with us today, Heather Hopkins, who is the founder and MD of Next Wealth and an absolute font of all knowledge about all things consumer duty. So um, Heather, I'm sure everybody knows you, but can you just introduce yourself and hello and a bit about, about yourself? Hey everyone, um, I love Conte. Um <laughs> I'll say it with my French-Canadian accent. Um, lovely to be here um, and looking forward to hearing what people have changed as a result of consumer duty. The poll results are really interesting so far. Yes, so um, if you haven't seen the poll already, we have got a poll just to the um, your left, I think, right? Um, there's a poll running to find out how people are feeling about um, consumer duty. And what you've had to change with answers ranging from nothing at all to we've, you know, chucked everything out and started again. So if you could answer the poll question there, that'd be really helpful as well. And we can have a look at that later. But as I say, today we're going to be looking at the consumer duty. It's actually six months today since that came in force. So the things that we're going to be looking at, the key things that we're going to be looking at today are... What actually have you guys had to do to get consumer duty ready? And we're also going to be looking at um, some of the key points, which are um, how are firms actually demonstrating the value that they're giving to clients for the fee that the client is paying? And also, how are they evidencing that the client actually understands the benefits of the service that they're getting and then they're meeting their consumer duty requirements as well? So if you've got any questions, just pop them in the chat and I'll be keeping an eye on those as we're going along and I can bring them up as well. But also, again, we've got the ask a question button down there if you want to. But I'm going to pass over to Heather first, because obviously you've done lots and lots of research and I'm sure you've got lots of 
insights into what firms have been doing and um, what's actually been happening in the wider world with consumer duty. So if you could just chat us through um, what you've been doing over at NextWealth, please. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so um, I, I should, rather than talking about cheese, I should have probably talked about what we do. Um, I run a market research firm um, and it's lunchtime, so I'm thinking about cheese. Um, but we we look to aggregate the views of people working in financial advice businesses um, to understand um, what's happening in the market and to help firms by understanding what's happening in you know, like-minded firms or, or firms of sort of similar similar profile. And we've done quite a bit of work on consumer duty, as you can imagine. Um, and if we can just put up the first slide, I think the first place we should start is with the customer. Um, and we did some research in um, October 2022, so it was after the consumer duty rules were finalized but not yet implemented, to understand from the customer, how do they define the value of advice and the relationship with their financial planner? And I think it's, you know, the, the, there's, there's lots of quotes on this slide that, that we'll go through. Um, but I think it's really interesting to, um, to understand that the, it, the clients aren't really thinking about advice as a service in isolation. And I think that's probably something that you'll all be really well aware of. But in defining value of advice, I think, and planning, I think the really difficult part is it's all encompassing because the advisor and the planner acts as the sort of the advocate, the um, the expert co-pilot, which co-pilot is difficult to use now because ChatGPT is the co-pilot, but, um, but sitting alongside that client, helping them to understand their requirements and plan for the future and so it's it, it crosses all of the different products be that protection investment etc um a few things so one of the consistent themes that came out of um the research and for those that can't read the slides apologies i'll go i'll go through them so you'll get an idea it might just be small text on the slide um the um the first thing was Portfolio performance came up repeatedly, um, and that was consistent with all of the end customers that we surveyed and interviewed. I mean, of course, there's outliers, but but basically, um, uh, you know, portfolio performance came up in all of the conversations and all the survey results with consumers about how they assess value. Um, the quote at the top, for those of you who can't read it, the most important thing is getting the best return. I was shocked by the fee, and I saw negative performance. I thought, what am I paying for? Um, and um, and you know that 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 is a view from a consumer, and we've heard from advisors that they've had that. There was somebody I was talking to um, a few weeks ago who said that his client had come in for an annual review and had brought um, a list of from Hargreaves Lansdowne of the best performing funds in the most recent quarter. And sometimes that that is part of the conversation in those review meetings with a client to just reset the expectations, get them focused back on the longer term. So performance is important. And with most of the clients we spoke to, it was different from that first quote. It wasn't about the best returns. It was that they wanted returns that they felt were reasonable. So they don't want they don't want poor performance. You know, they're not working with a professional to have a portfolio that's in the dumps, but they want somebody who, you know, is going to help them achieve their long-term goals, but performance is part of that. The second one is um, is about charging a fair fee. 
So um, again, coming back to performance of this quote from a consumer, as long as they don't lose me money, then I'm reassured. They spend time understanding me. So the percentage fee I pay means they're doing their best to make money. I have one less thing to worry about, not like with an hourly or a flat rate fee. And the reason I wanted to include that quote is I thought that, you know, when we were probing around what fee the clients were paying, how it's structured, there was a real um, lack of understanding about what fee was. Um, you know, when we asked people, they'd say as much as 7%, 15%, you know, 1%. They really didn't know how much they were paying on an ongoing basis. Um, but they, um, they did, a lot of people said, as long as the performance is more than the fee, then I feel that that's fair. Um, I'm not sure the regulator would accept that as a definition of fair value. Um, but you know, we need to take the customer's view into, into account. The other thing that came out consistently is the structure of the fee. So we asked about um, asset-based fees, we asked about flat fees, subscription fees, and consistently we heard a real preference for asset-based fees. Um, and I know that that runs counter to a lot of the um, conversation in the market about the future of financial planning being focused on the plan, not the assets. So we need to disconnect those things. Um, and, but, you know, I think it's just important, every, you know, everyone's client set's going to be different. The uh, goals and aspirations of your business are going to be different, but it might be you know, an important part of that step to really understand what customers prefer. There was a sense that there was an alignment of interest and um, if, if it was based on assets, because the, the advisor has an incentive to grow the portfolio. Um, you know, whether that's what you want to see as the value of planning, I'm not sure. Um, and there was also people who felt that they understood that. It's hard for them to equate, think about, well, what should I be paying on a flat fee basis? But it was easy for them to say, oh, it's worth X percent of my portfolio. Um, the last one around transparency and defendable all-in costs, um, Clients are talking about inflation. So this is from a um, an advisor. Um, clients are talking about inflation, how interest rates have gone up and the markets have been depressed and performance of their portfolio hasn't been great. Clients are aware of ours, the DFM platform and investment fees. When we talk about fair value and are looking at returns from the portfolios with haven't been great over the last 12 months. So really thinking about that all in fee, not the planning fee, which we talked about a bit at the beginning. Um, if we look on the other side, on the development of trust, um, these are three uh, quotes from um, end clients. So um, understanding the style um, of clients and how they want to manage their wealth. So it was important at the outset to make sure I was going to get a person who actually knows me and actually understands what I'm trying to do. A lot of IFAs um, then were very impersonal. I wasn't getting, you know, it's getting quite an arm's length service that personal relationship is so important when we think about how we integrate tech in our business still having that personal relationship is really really important and that helps to as that foundation of trust which a lot of clients um tied with that concept of value and um, ongoing advice that reflects long-term objectives the second quote on that that right hand side i stopped working three years ago so i need to flexibly manage my funding maximize return because the money has to last. My IFA explains technical detail and implications of options to make my investments work as hard as possible. So that, that expectation is part of that trust that the advisor knows what they're doing. They have the technical knowledge, but also they can explain it in a way that makes sense for the client. Um, and the last one, clarity of portfolio adjustments. 
um, you know, somebody who's looking after making your money work for you. Um, if it wasn't working, I would definitely not hesitate in questioning what was going on and um, looking for other advice. I trust my IFA to put things right and tell me about it. And I think that's quite an optimistic view of most consumers' understanding of what's actually happening in their portfolios and in their plan. Um, and people do tend to overestimate their own knowledge. Um, so, um, so I just you know treat that with a, a you know, bit of a pinch of salt. But, um, but there there was one client we spoke to who said. I love this. I 100 million percent sleep better at night because I know he's on top of it, referring to, to his financial planner. And I, I love that because, you know, it's probably good. He's not trying to figure out the value of fees on a percentage basis <laughs> with those sorts of numbers. But that, you know, that, that that's the crux of the challenge is it's a lot of the softer stuff, building of trust. How's that done? it can be really difficult, but hopefully those quotes and those examples give more specifics around, around that. Um, if we move on to the next slide, um, and then um, around confidence of firms in assessing um, in evidencing value. So this was based on um, a survey that we did um, at the beginning of last year. So again, before um, before the duty was actually implemented. Um, there were sort of mixed levels of confidence. I don't think, you know, there weren't very many who said they weren't confident at all, um, but sort of mixed levels of confidence. And if we move to the next one about how they were planning to evidence value, it'd be really good to hear in the chat, um, you know, the views from, from people. Um, so if we can move forward one more. Um, on the fees, so this is somewhere. This is something where um, you know core to evidencing value is, is the fee value for money. Um, uh, at Next Wealth, we published benchmarks. This is based on a survey we do every summer. We did it with the CISI and PIMP for this year. Um, we also send that to our research panel. So if you're interested in getting involved in our research, we would love to hear your views. And for those of you that do already contribute, thank you. Um, um, I think there's going to be a link in the chat to sign up for that research panel. Um, but of the people that responded to the survey last summer, the average ongoing fee for advice was um, had come down a little bit to 64 basis points on average. Um, but that benchmark can sometimes be helpful in evidencing value because you know if you're below that, it's a little bit easier. If you're above, it's, well, what additional services are you offering above and beyond what others might be offering um, that, that make that advice worth it? And that's just to clarify, ongoing advice, initial charges are very different from that. Um, but that can be a helpful input. And I'm going to take a break there, Caroline. Um, so we can have a bit of a conversation. I can catch up with the chat. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, it's really interesting, like you say, about what we perceive that clients value. And then obviously with your the, the quotes that you've got there, what clients actually value are sometimes quite, quite different. Um, so that's, you know, it's really interesting because we all think, obviously, that we know best and we know what clients want, but sometimes just getting in there and asking them, it can be quite an eye opener, I think. Um, it's really interesting research that you've got there. So a question for everybody to answer in the chat. And how are you at your firms? How are you demonstrating um, client value? And do you feel confident with your with the, the way that you're actually handling that and that you're in line with your with the requirements needed? So we just have a think about that while we're um, and pop your answers in the chat and we can have a look at the poll because we've got the poll here. It's it's quite a relatively even split. There's fortunately nobody's had to do a complete overhaul, which is which is really interesting. 
and probably very good news as well. And um, nobody's done nothing. So that's, that's, I suppose that's quite good as well. So we've got a range between not much, uh, 54.5% and then quite a bit at 44.45. So if you haven't had a chance to answer it yet, oh, it's changing already. Um, then, yeah, if you just go in and, and answer on the poll as well. Um, I think for my part, I work with obviously quite a few different firms and uh, and largely I think most of them were already doing most of the things that they needed to be doing to be consumer duty ready. It was more around formalising process and actually having, you know, structure in place to actually demonstrate that they're doing. So I think that's maybe similar to what other people um, have been have been finding in their own firms because, you know, you're probably doing most of it but just need to make sure that it's actually dotting the I's and crossing the T's and that kind of thing. So, so just having a look at the chat. Is anyone sending cheese as part of their proposition? That would be <laughs> I think it's really interesting. The, um, and I'd love to hear from those firms who said that they were doing quite a bit to change because um, what we heard was that um, the, what was delivered to the client didn't require so much change from firms. Um, but what was being collected in the back end to mm. evidence value um, was really different. So, um, so a lot of firms quite, I mean, there were some minor adjustments that had to be made here and there, but the majority, the bulk of the work that I heard about was really firms looking to gather data from mm. um, partners and suppliers. Um, the other thing, and, and I'd be really interested if anyone had any experience with this was, um, was changing providers that they were working with. So we've seen a shrinking in the number of external partners, um, be that platform, um, DFMs, um, I mean, those in particular, um, but you know, the number of, of DFMs that firms who work with an outsourced DFM um, mm. changed. It was quite a marked change from, it was about two and a half a couple of years ago to I think it was 1.7 on average. And mm. that's a pretty big shift in that short space mm -hmm. of time. But the you know, one of the requirements of consumer duty is around the due diligence on external partners and the ability to do that with a wide range was tough. So it created an incentive in some firms, I think, to, you know, clients, clients always come with stuff, right? Um, they don't come to you and say, I've got all this cash sitting in my bank account. I'd love for you to help me with it, right? They come to you with all sorts of stuff, with all sorts of pension providers. And but the the motivation to move that to uh, to fewer partners, I think, has really increased. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested if that's consistent with what other firms of that collection of data, and then moving moving firms, um, you know, either platform back up, you know, closed book mm -hmm. pension providers, shrinking number of DFMs, those kinds of things. Mm. So we've got some questions here in the chat. So someone's saying that they've moved to timeline. To help with consumer duty it'd just be interesting to know how you're using that to demonstrate fair value oh, someone's already said that actually so yeah it'd be interesting to know how you're using systems and processes like that to actually um demonstrate value i think the, the thing is i think someone just pointed this out here it's not um it's not down to us to decide what value is like you say heather it's it's what the client perceives as value but i think Certainly what I've found with some of my clients, what we've been doing, I and mean, we've been doing it for a long time, actually, not just um, not just since the consumer duty came in. So, for example, with annual reviews, 
not all value will be monetary based or you know it's not necessarily going to be a tangible pounds and pence amount so what we've done is we've added sections in our annual review reports which is what have we done for you this year you know how have we helped you this year so things like that might be you know we've we advised you we helped you money independent so you've got x amount tax relief which has saved you you know x pounds but also things like as part of our service we've helped you get a state pension retirement um forecast or we've helped you you know get your wills and your lasting powers of attorney in place and things like that so it's kind of demonstrating value in a different way where the client understands that the fee is not simply about managing a portfolio or fund switches or things like that so be interesting to see what everybody what anybody else is actually doing in say annual reviews um to demonstrate demonstrate value so if you've got anything that you're doing super whizzy if you want to put it in the put it in the chat and then we can obviously have a have a chat about that there's um there's a number of comments about timelines it's really interesting mm. because um I mean, they uh, we we track growth of discretionary mps and they've been so last year they were our top growing this year in the most recent report and just this year it's december i guess it's last year now isn't it i can't remember what year we're in but they were the second fastest growing and it's really interesting because that low cost evidence-based model has really um caught traction the integration into the planning tools i think is also another really interesting um thing that differentiates them um but i don't think it's just about cost i think it's it's it if it's going to be a if it's going to be a run-of-the-mill mps then it better be cheap um but we also saw waverton moved into the top 10 and that's on the more expensive end very active um so i think it's really interesting that the the firms that we're seeing gaining traction are you know they offer either they're offering low cost really you know really good rebalancing um thinking about i think timeline do some really interesting things about helping to manage cash allocation so that things don't you know there doesn't have to be all the manual work from advice firms to ring fence that in a rebalance and so on so they do some really clever stuff with their tech and their their behind the scenes stuff um there's and then waverton have a really good investment story um to tell um, so you know, it's not the death of active. Um, they've had they've had really good performance and have had um, strong asset growth, not just from performance but also new new clients. Um, there was also a comment around vouched for somebody who's using. I've not heard of elevation, um, but somebody mentioned vouched for. Um, we're definitely hearing more firms using um, client you know, doing client surveys, mm-hmm. um, and I know that the regulator said client satisfaction isn't evidence of value, um, but. I mean, as a researcher, I would say this. I think it's really important to talk to your clients and, you know, not just to evidence value, but also Mm -hmm. to, you know, to think about, you know, the proposition from your client's perspective. And it can inform those decisions about asset-based fees and um, percentage fees and and so on. Yeah, there's some interesting points have been made in the chat also, actually. So we've got um, quite here that value is dependent on the service being relevant to that particular client as in are they on the right service level which quite nicely links to a question from uh, or a point here so as a question for everybody in the chat has any firms decided to disengage with clients if they don't feel that they're providing them with value for money and I think that's a really interesting point because when I've been training people or when I've been working with people 
to talk about um, what it is that, you know, when you're talking about things in a review or, you you know, you want to have a catch up with the client, if you're really struggling to say what we've done for you this year or, you know, you're really struggling to demonstrate value, it's probably because they aren't necessarily getting that value. If you can't clearly show and articulate what you've done for your fee, then I would be questioning you know, if you can't demonstrate it, then it's probably unlikely that you are that you are giving value for money. So it would be interesting to see because obviously with clients with uh, with smaller fund values and smaller plans and pots, it'd be interesting to see um, how many people have actually disengaged with those. So we hear um, we hear from platforms that the. Uh, the number of orphan clients since the introduction of consumer duty has 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 skyrocketed um, and it's become a priority for them partly because of the significant asset you know the, there's a lot of assets there mm. so they need to think about what are we what are we going to do with this um, and it's growing um, but also because they have obligations under consumer duty to evidence value and you know if it was an advisor introduced relationship it's a little bit tricky for some of them to think about that we're definitely um, hearing that there was we're doing a report at the moment on um, future financial advice to look forward to what the industry might look like in five years time and one of the things that that came out was this this idea of the, the minimum viable client and it's it's that um, and it's in different firms are using different ways to measure it. It's, it's well, if my minimum fee, because a lot of firms as part of consumer duty said, right, the minimum fee I need to charge as a firm is this. And then, so any clients where it doesn't make sense for them to pay that because of the value that's delivered as part of the advice doesn't meet my minimum viable client level. Um, and others have thought about it on an asset size. Some it's based on complexity of need. Um, and um, so it's, I think that's a really, really interesting conversation and in how that will evolve in future, because, of course, it's it's not great for society. I mean, as businesses, you have to be profitable, but mm. but we all know the benefit of financial planning advice. And if the, the minimum level to be able to um, qualify for advice increases, that's not great. Um, I think, you know, the advice guidance boundary review, we'll see where that goes, but potentially some opportunities for firms, larger firms probably to offer simplified advice um, mm. in accumulation, but it's, it's a, it's a big hornet's nest, I guess. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think having said that, I think we are seeing people, like you say, with the advancement of technology and where it's going to be in the next few years, we're definitely seeing people moving into that space because you've got on my head there's there's subscription services and then there's money mean the, the the new money means um service as well so i think there is something in that space it's just obviously it's how do you introduce people to that and how do you explain to clients that you know it's not an easy conversation that we're going to have to going to have to let you go i'm afraid because you're just not profitable for us so it's um not an easy conversation i would imagine to have at all um, yeah, yeah. I think that. the one way, um, one of the ways I've heard that it's a bit easier is rather because you don't want to tell somebody you're too small for me. No, of course, um, that's really difficult. But saying um, that, and that's where I think that minimum fee level is really helpful because it's look as a business because of the costs of you know regulatory oversight and business overhead and such. You know, the minimum fee level I need to charge clients is this, and I just wouldn't feel that you'd be getting good value for that fee if you want to pay that fee that's your decision but 
I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to be a good value for you based on the, on what I can deliver. And I think that's then a slightly easier conversation because it turns it around. It's not easy. I agree. I think there was a really good comment um, earlier. So I've, it's 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 gone, gone up. But um, but just recognizing how difficult it is because it it is yeah. really difficult. It's a really interesting point here, though. If you were happy to deal with the client pre-consumer duty, why has this changed? And it's a really that's a really interesting point. And I guess it's all about, um, you say it's all about segmentation, isn't it? And making sure that you're a, you've are you got the right clients in the first place and that, that it was the right fit originally rather than, you know, unless obviously the, the asset value has changed due to decumulation or something like that, which can, if someone's been with you for a very, very, very long time, that could be an even more challenging and uncomfortable sad conversation even if they've been with you for a very long time so yeah and it's also you know the complexity of family relationships too Mm. and I think that the um the flexibility of charging hasn't always been there on the platform to have the um you, there might be somebody who's, you know, a, you know, the children of clients or what have you. Sometimes you can get family linking for the platform charge, but you can't get that family linking for the advisor charge. And so, um, you know, making sure as part of the platform due diligence that that flexibility is there to be able to charge clients the way they should be charged and that they want to be charged so that you can deliver the proposition that you want as a business um, mm. can be really, really important so that, that you know, if there is somebody in the family who wants to cover the fees for the whole family, that that can be done. Yeah, it's really interesting, interesting point. We've got someone just commenting here as well that they offer a pay-as-you-go service so the clients don't completely disengage i have a couple of clients who do that they'll charge a fee an initial flat fee for for creating a financial plan and getting them sorted in the first place and then they just come back as and when they need it and that works really well for not all of their clients most of their clients have the ongoing service but you know for the option of people once it's been tidied up you might not need you might only need you know a light touch service now and again when things happen so it's it's I think it, like you say it's good to have that flexibility, isn't it, to be able to do that? Um, lots of really good questions coming up here. So right, yeah. So it's saying here as well. Do, do you have, do you find many of um, when you've done your research? There's somebody talking about here that they only have a transactional service. Do you have many? Have you come across that much, Heather? Um, so, if, I, absolutely, absolutely. I think the um, the majority of firms it's still an ongoing advice fee, but yeah, it does it does come up, and um, and it was really interesting because for the, we ask about the fee models that are used, and 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 I I don't have the numbers. In fact, <laughs> I just have it to hand. I'll flick through and try and find it. This is our, we call it FAB. It's our Financial Advice Business Benchmarks Report. Um, that's one that we do with PIMP and the CISI. But um, let me just flick to my price and, price and value page. So, um, yeah, so, oh, I know it's in here. Um, anyway, we saw more use of different fee models this year. So the majority ongoing asset-based fees um but um but firms introducing multiple models and um and i don't know if you want to come on to the, the next slides but you yeah. know we could talk a bit about client segmentation um 
as part of as part of that and and thinking about you know what the proposition is for the fees so if we move to the um the next slide so when we asked financial advisors about the criteria used to evidence the value of advice and this is a survey from december 2023 um uh, i think it's really interesting so client satisfaction we've already talked about a couple of people using vouched for other services oh thanks ian for putting up the link to that report it's my favorite that's why we, we call it fab um not just because it's the acronym um and um cash flow modeling was really important i think that's you know core part of how financial planners evidence value and it's not just the um it's not just the fact of doing the cash flow modeling but it's that peace of mind i was speaking to somebody a few weeks ago who said she would love if they could have you know you go into an airport and have the the you know the happier sad sign before you go, you know, when you're going through security or even in the loo, sometimes they have it. And she said she'd love to have one of those that people could press the button before the meeting and after the meeting because they come in and they're anxious and they're worried and they leave and they're like, ah, oh, everything's going to be okay. I'm not going to run out of money. And that, you know, that use of cash flow model modeling, but the value that that gives in terms of peace of mind is so important. Mm -hmm. um, the next one is um, performance of the client portfolio. That's the easiest one to calculate, and it is core part of what's delivered. So that's part of it as well. Um, and then specific deliverables. So talking about the number of contact points in a year, what was done throughout the year um, to evidence value, not to the client to say, look, this is how what I've done for you, but in the back end to say, just to record the activities that have taken place. Um, and then for clients, milestones against client financial goals and objectives, there's... Um, there was a planner I spoke to at the CISI conference last year who um, they have a board on their wall of um, when clients come in and do a financial plan or the review, they write on a, on a on like magnet that they stick up on the wall, their goals that they would like to achieve, financial goals they'd like to achieve and, financial, and then they move the things that they wanted to to achieve. Then they have this board and it's all of the things people are looking to achieve and the things that they've already, you know, checked off yeah. um, that they've achieved that are part of the financial plan. And it's a nice visual to help clients remember mm -hmm. it's not just about portfolio performance, but you know, it's an interesting way of doing that. Time spent, I think, is a really, really interesting one that I think is growing in interest. Again, when we talked to clients about this, they didn't like the idea of time tracking um, mm. in the work we did pre-implementation of consumer duty. Um, they were nervous that they were going to feel they were on the clock like they do with their accountant or the lawyers, um, that they didn't want to feel that they couldn't call up and ask about how things were doing or if they saw something in the news. Um, so they like the idea of having somebody who's sort of always there. But I think time spent can really help from a firm perspective. Um, I mean, we're a small business, we don't do financial planning, but we track our time on projects because it's the only way we can really measure whether they're profitable for us as a business, because it's all about the human resource that's put into things. So then you get an idea of, are the people who are paying more than they should based on the amount of time that we're spending on that client's work? And I wouldn't advocate that's done in, in, on a project to project or year to year basis, because Sometimes clients will have a big requirement for need in a year and then mm. not much for a few years. So it's that getting that picture over time. Um, and if we move to the next one, looking at, um, at client segmentation. So there's a lot of text on this, this slide. Um, but I think this is an area where firms have done a lot of work um, over the last year. Um, mm. Client segmentation is obviously something that, that's being done for a long time, but um, but you know how that how's that 
evolved, um, particularly since the prod rules were introduced. So, um, so uh, you know, on the left we have the predefined service levels. So, you know, what are the client segments, and what's the proposition that we deliver for that? Um, and a you know, a quote with um, from an, um, a financial planner and sort of a mid-sized firm before we built our segmentation model, we might have had a client with 150,000 pension, specific level of service with so many hours dedicated to them, but we had no idea whether they had premium bonds or money in the bank, a DB pension. So, you know, really thinking about what's that predefined level of service, but then also building into the proposition, making sure you have a full understanding of that, that client and evolving them over time. Um, and then if we look at the characteristics, outcome and journey for that segmentation model, um, so the prod rules focused on fulfilling the needs of an identified target market. Um, but what we heard from um, financial advice professionals, we use that term to sort of encapsulate different roles within a firm, um, that it was, it was a subtle but a significant shift for client segmentation to really the service design and suitability. Um, to a deeper understanding of how the client characteristics impact the experience. What's the client experience? What are they going to do? Um, so, so taking it not just from that suitability thing perspective, but, but looking a little bit further. Um, and then outcomes, so consumer duty having that outcomes-based focus, building that into the, um, into the client segmentation model. Um, a firm we spoke to had eight different segments of clients um, looking at tax strategy, liaising with professionals, cash flow modeling, split by pre and post retirement. So not just the investable assets, but what are the other things that need to be delivered to that client as part of the, their journey? Um, and then that last one on journey, speaking of which, um, do clients have the same level of ongoing advice throughout that journey? Um, what may make that change? Um, it is they need to have flexibility in the segmentation to ensure that it's personalized but but it helps to think about what service is offered as as part of that and you know challenging you know, what can be delivered for different profiles of customers that advisor in that um um quote just talking about you know with a client with a million pounds can we deliver against that based on the fees mm -hmm. that were charged um so i think a lot of work being done on client segmentation which i'd i'd love to hear um um, you know, if people have, have done work on that over the last year, it'd be really, really interesting to hear. It is, yeah, yeah, most definitely. It's, um, and I think with the advent of technology and things like that, it'll, it'll, it's just going to be a completely movable feast, isn't it, over the next few years anyway, as we get more um, more assistance and more technology to actually smooth that process as well. So, but it's interesting you should yeah. say about the time recording. Um, because it, 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 I often wonder how profitability can be measured if you're not not doing it. Like you say, it's, I mean, I, as an outsourcer, obviously, I use it all the time, but we've just had um, a lot of conversation about that. So it'll be interesting <clears throat> how people are actually measuring it if they're not measuring their time. I and mean, how do they actually assess profitability if you don't know how long thing, things take? I mean, it's not a criticism. It's just a just a, a question because I, I really wouldn't know how you would how you would do that um yeah but, and, and it's interesting isn't it because it was only 27 oh sorry it was only 27 percent doing it the they're talking about the different software that you can use I use Clockify for my time tracking so I'm going to throw that in there because so we had I saw we had Harvest and Tockle 
Toggle, but there's also Clockify as well, which is quite nice. So sorry, I talked over you there, Heather. Please continue. No, no, no. I, we use Clockify as well at Nextstep, <laughs> and um, and you can integrate it. So there were some people talking about Zero. So we have it integrated into different systems. I think mm. we have it integrated into Zero, um, but only a quarter of firms using time tracking to um, to evidence value, which I think is is really interesting. But again. I think there's a misunderstanding that that's reported to the client. And I think actually it's for the internal business management that, that where it's, it's important. Um, there was a question about, um, a, a comment about IO. Um, I think one of the things we hear about IO's time tracking is because it's a seat license that you can't always, not everyone within the firm will have access to it. Um, and so, so some firms find, depending on, on, how it's set up within your firm, if not everybody has access to IntelliFlow um, with their own license. Um, mm. Not that anyone shares, but, <laughs> but that can create some challenges there. But we use the free version of Clockify, so. Mm. It's, I, I really like it, it's just nice and simple, but, but it's, it's, it's really interesting, I think, and a useful tool for demonstrating value as well, if you actually know how long you're spending on each particular client, but. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't had anyone say, how do you track hold time with providers? Because that's usually one of the questions I get. Good point. Really good point. <laughs> so, so I'm going to move on now, if I may, to the other thing that we were going to look at, which was demonstrating client understanding or consumer understanding, as it's called. Because I think it's, I think that's one of those things that I hear the most, kind of not grumbles exactly, but you know how how do people go about doing it i know asking clients to sign a box as i think it's been mutually agreed that it's not probably the best way so how are you seeing people demonstrating that heather and just asking the chat if people could just say how they're getting people to demonstrate client or how you're asking clients to demonstrate that they understand it'd be really interesting to know so um so, so the the question about signing a box, I think, I just just to address that one, I think it's really interesting because in Australia, the regulator requires financial advisors to have their clients sign up to the fee every year, um, and and the thing that's really interesting about that is that um, is that the, the there was a lot of worry about whether people would um, because it's always hard to get people to sign another form. But actually what it's done for firms is it means that they eliminate the risk um, and they found that clients have been signing on to the fee each year as part of the client review meeting. Um, and, and there's no, because it's a document of here's what's delivered um, and here's the fee and then, and then the client signs, um, it, there, there's no risk to that firm of a client saying value wasn't delivered unless of course what was meant to be delivered as part of that in you know contract wasn't wasn't delivered mm -hmm. so i think i think you know that we should maybe be less worried about that than 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 some are um not that you want to move in that direction but you know if the regulator does it might not be the, the terrible thing that that some mm -hmm. people expect it might actually really really good for businesses to reduce pi cover and costs and etc um in terms of how firms are doing it well, I think um, I think the um, getting the fee model mapped to the proposition for the client segmentation model is the, is where I've seen that done best. Um, 
so so thinking about you know for clients with these requirements these are the you know this is the sort of product set these would be the fee bands we would expect not just for advice but for product charges and so on um and and so it gives enough flexibility um but but also some parameters within which to work and then if there's differences that stand out from that it's easier to identify mm. um i think the you know for there's one of the good things that's happened from this is it's helped firms to negotiate on fees because they can't justify differences and you, across a client base who have similar requirements. So if you've got three platforms with different charges, there's been some harmonizing of that across platform. And I think that's been good for clients because, you know, as usual, advisors are negotiating on behalf of their clients um, on the platform charge. Um, so that's helped bring down bring down costs and in some cases and and make that more even um yeah i think i think those are the two things that i would point to that have that have gone well mm. Mm, good yes interesting i think part of that and part of client understanding is i guess making sure that they understand what they're actually supposed to be getting for the fee that they're paying as well so it's really good I think what you're saying about the Australian model just reminding them every year is probably a really good it's probably good practice anyway irrespective of, of consumer duty so yeah it's um yeah it's an interesting one an interesting one yeah and it's been disclosed I mean I it's 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 on the platform statement right that the fees charged have been disclosed um on a pound and pence basis for for a wee while now and um so so I, I think and that's one of the reasons i think that a lot of firms didn't have to make massive overhauls to mm. the proposition that they were delivering because you know some of it had been done i think there's still more to come um with because the regular i mean the, i don't know how many how many people in firms got dear CEO letters last mm. you know, at the end of last year? But the um, I think the volume of output from the regulator has definitely stepped up, and there was a lot of skepticism um, that I heard before the implementation of consumer duty that oh you know here's another piece of regulation, but is the regulator actually going to do anything about it? Is there going to be enforcement? Um, but we've already seen some changes and some quite large firms, some high profile changes. Um, as a result of consumer duty and then the, the dear CEO letters suggesting that, that there's a bit, I think there's a bit more behind this um, mm. than maybe we've seen with past bits of, of regulation. Mm. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, like you say, with, with it being enforced only six months today, I think it will be interesting to see how it plays out. We'll revisit it again at, at 12 months or something like that and see, because there'll probably be a lot more, um, feedback and a lot more information that we can you know extrapolate good practice best practice that kind of thing from it so yeah it'll be a be an interesting one to watch I think so I've got a question for people in the chat and that's my question is how are you guys demonstrating that a client understands the advice that you've given and how, you, how is your firm evidencing consumer understanding? I'm going to leave that with you guys to um, tell us what you're up to. And if you've got any good ideas or any, um, any ideas that you can share, any good practice that you can share, that'd be really interesting. So I've, I've, um, I think personally, this, 
something that I think people have really been struggling with. Um, but a couple of my clients have been doing it because obviously just having a checkbox at the end end of a report or something like that would do you understand. I think very few clients would actually want to say um, that they don't understand what they've been told. I think it's human nature, isn't it, just to kind of agree with it. So um, I think a lot of my firms have been, what they've been doing is they've actually been, take care if you're stupid, exactly, take care if you're stupid. Um, so a lot of firms I think that I've been working with have actually been um, including that as part of the meeting, part of the client meeting, and they'll actually get the client to explain back to them um, what what we've talked about, what we've understood, what the actions are going to be. And then that's actually noted into the to the fact finder because a lot of meetings are recorded as well, particularly when you're doing them online. It's really handy because you can actually go back and demonstrate, it, especially if the client's told you in their own words what it is that they're expecting. So have you have you got any ex, any kind of evidence or any research surrounding that, Heather? Um, yeah, customer understanding is a really, really complex one, isn't it? Um, because you're right, people want to say they understand, um, yeah. and, and and you know, don't don't we all? Um, so so it is really difficult. Um, a couple of things that I've heard is um, so I, th I think I think I think financial planning firms are actually quite far ahead on this relative to the industry. Um, if we just you know, I think vulnerable clients and client understanding is a particular challenge, but, um, you know, the FCA letter in November, your CEO letter to stockbrokers said 69% of stockbrokers um, said that they didn't have any clients with vulnerabilities and, and financial advice firms that are much closer to their clients, I think, have a much better understanding of the situation. I think one of the challenges I hear is the... Um, is the understanding after leaving the meeting with a financial planner is is really high, but as time passes, um, that can change. And so it's how do you measure it at the point at which the advice is delivered, or is that the right time to measure it? Um, one firm I spoke to asked um, a subgroup of clients to ask as a sort of a council to inform the firm on this and and as a gift gives them a case of wine once a year and um and then interviews them once a year and gets them all together once a year to talk mm. about the communications coming out of the client so putting you know the different fact sheets in front of them and so on mm. i think the you know depending on the firm um a lot of times advice firms will rely on third parties for most of the communication that's sent and so there's a there's an expectation that the DFMs or the platforms will have done some degree of customer testing. So I would definitely put your questions to the providers you work with about what specifically have you done, because they will have done quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it might even give you ideas for, you know, if you're creating your own material um, to be able to, to check that. Um, and, and putting pressure on them to do client ready communication because the professional use only stuff is, it's a, I, I, I'm constantly telling providers that's of limited value because you need information you can, you know, take and send to clients and help you articulate what's happening. Um, so if it's professional use only, then it hasn't been tested with customers. Um, uh, and somebody mentioned Money Alive, which I think is a really, really great solution as well. 
Yeah, it's it, it's really interesting what you say about the professional use only, because equally they're going to be in some sort of gobbledygook that even financial professionals a lot of the time will probably really struggle with. And I think one of the key things that I've seen certainly coming out of um, the consumer understanding is the way that people are writing and the way that they're communicating with people. They're really much more conscious of the language that they're using, of the tone that they're using, of the way that they're actually delivering advice in the first place so you know with the for example your suitability reports have historically been I think mostly ones I've seen in the past they're just horrible and no one's going to read them anyway so now not only have you got to demonstrate that they have read them but also that they've understood them in the first place so I think it's um it's a really it's a really good opportunity for people to kind of put their flair and their branding and making sure that you know that they're that the, the stuff that they're sending out actually is you know for, for you know not for professional use almost and that a norm you know is a normal human being going to understand this and it's I always use it's like the with my mum understand it test kind of thing when I'm reading communications and if I'm struggling to understand it then you know I know for a layman wouldn't be able to an ordinary client wouldn't be able to I mean, some of the things that I've been using is stuff like making sure that it's plain English and readability tests and all that kind of thing. So not just the suitability reports, but any communication that you have with your client, you need to have make sure that you're having a would my mum understand it, would my dad understand it kind of test. So, you know, it's it's really about overhauling a lot of what we've done, I think, um, and making sure that it actually is getting read. You know, I've worked with financial advisors in the past who shall remain nameless. And it's like, I've got to give you this. I don't expect you to read it, you know, just and it goes in a drawer somewhere. Or, well, my clients trust me. They don't need to know. You know, I've told them what we're doing. So and I think this is probably a real shift in culture, not, you know, to actually it's not about trust. It's about making sure that that record is there for them and that they do understand it because there's a. There's a comment on here, actually, that's saying one way of checking client understanding is asking them what the most valuable part was or which part of the report did they find the most useful. And that's a really interesting way of finding it out without asking, you know, are you a bit stupid, (laughs) as the comment earlier before said. Um, Yeah, I think um, a couple of of things to mention. Um, So um, I sometimes use AI to translate things. So ChatGPT, if you say, you know, can you write this in a format of, you know, and choose, I wouldn't choose the, you know, the King James Bible, but maybe, um, you know, maybe a newspaper whose tone aligns with the one that you think would be appropriate for your um, clients. The other thing to mention is I think that the amount of, you know, the amount of disclosure is a real issue because, um, you know, yes, it's easy to hide behind disclosure and say, oh, my suitability letter looks like this because of the amount of disclosures I have to include in it. And, you know, I would challenge firms to think a bit differently about that and um, and and not hide behind that. But the regulator does recognize there's a problem and they're going to be doing a review of the disclosure regime um, because they don't want people hiding behind, oh, I disclosed it, so I'm not guilty. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the other side of it. So they have to make sure that it's it's reasonable the amount that's being disclosed to client is understandable um, because even if it's written in plain English and it's 60 pages, well, I'm not going to read it. How many people have read their Apple terms and conditions? You know, nobody. <laughs> You're dead right. It's like, you know, it's, if I include absolutely everything that could possibly ever be 
investing you know for the client then it's it's not like you say it's completely defeating the purpose isn't it so just realized it's five to two already so um goodness that's gone really quickly so i have actually um I'm just going to wrap it up now. Um, I've actually been given parish notices to talk to everybody about. So um, firstly, the thing, first thing I'd like to do is thank Heather for her time. It's been absolutely fantastic, Heather. Thank you so, so much for all your interesting research and comment. It's just been absolutely um, brilliant. So uh, are there any kind of finishing points that you'd like to leave us with? Um I mean, I guess I thank you for those of you that contribute to our research, because my opinions are only your opinions aggregated. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. Um, and um, and I think um, a piece of work we did recently, we asked about the proportion of clients with vulnerabilities and not a single respondent to the survey said that they had no clients with vulnerabilities. And so if you contrast that to the stockbroking market or wealth managers where it was very different um you know i think i think we're in a much better place in terms of of we shouldn't be complacent but i think the financial mm -hmm. advice profession is further along um on evidencing duty and being aware of what's going on with their customer base that's reassuring to hear <laughs> most definitely so okay so i'm going to wrap it up now so firstly thank you for everybody joining in and all of the brilliant questions and all of the brilliant chat that's absolutely fantastic we've covered off so much today and i've certainly learned lots and lots and lots so the parish notices like i said so um you can um keep chatting on the big tent so you can keep conversation going there if you want to there's lots and lots of information on there you can ask questions answer questions all sorts of things um and uh we're also trying something new today so if you want to get a cpd certificate for attending today then um if you follow the link that either has just been or is just about to be put into the chat you should be able to request um request that for your cpd record um, and if you're listening on the podcast or you're watching later, you can always have a look on the useful links page, useful bits link of the events page on the Parapanner Assembly website. So I've also got some interesting news of more events coming up. And so we've got one in London, which is the other other London Assembly uh, for this year. And that's going to be on the 2nd of May at Barnet Waddingham's London office uh, London Place Office. So that's being held by Dan Atkinson and Andy Schleider. So if you want to have more information about that, if you have a look on the Paraplanet Assembly website, the next online assembly is going to be here at one o'clock on the 28th. And that's looking at the state of the paraplanning nation. And that's um, with Steve Nelson from the Landcat as well. So he's going to be looking at the research that they have recently done. And that's going to be with Alan Gow and Jackie Manning. So you have a look for that in in the um, upcoming newsletter. That newsletter is also going to include details of 2024's um, Big Day Out. So finally, I'd just like to say thank you again to all of our supporters. So Aegon, Barnet Waddingham, Canaccord, MG Wealth, Parmenian, Scottish Widows, and Transact. So thank you so much for all of your uh, for all of their support. And also keep your eye on the newsletter because there's also going to be details of in-person assemblies in Bristol and Southampton coming up.
I think, sorry, that was a very quick whistle-stop tour of everything that's coming up. So thank you again, everybody, so much for joining in, and um, we'll see you again soon.